everyone welcome to manufacturing hub i am dave this guy up here is vlad and we have made it to episode 89 we are talking with ryan kershaw ryan welcome to the show thank you for being here thanks dave yeah no pleasure to be on with you and vlad and uh yeah glad uh glad you guys invited me on it's uh, i think it's gonna be a fun little time here absolutely ryan thank you so much for taking the time uh, before we dive into technical sales, could you maybe give us a little bit of a background? How did you get started in the industry? How did you get into manufacturing and what are you doing today? Sure. Uh, so I'm probably one of the last guys you'll hear say this, but much of my stuff has been uh, on the job training. I got into manufacturing as somebody working in a warehouse uh, for a small company and then started to apply my trade at the technical side of things. Uh, went, did some courses in electronics and that. Uh, started handling some of the repairs for sensors and controls. Uh, and then moved out to inside, then outside sales of that company. Stayed there for, I guess I was there for about a dozen years. Um, also got involved with my local ISA chapter. So International Society of Automation uh, in the Toronto area. And um, also got working with the Canadian Process Control Association as well. So. Did that for a little while, uh, moved over to Mettler Toledo. Uh, so Mettler Toledo, I kind of mentioned Mettler has five divisions. Everybody knows them for scales. I handled the one division that did not have scales. So do not ask me any scale <laughs> questions. I know nothing about them. Um, it's, it's the one question I always get. It's the one question I just kind of throw up my hands and walk away from. Uh, but yeah, so I spent uh, oh, about eight years there, uh, national sales manager for Canada. I have been into every industry uh, out there, um, some really good. Uh, breweries are one of my favorites. Uh, some really bad. Uh, fish rendering plant in Vancouver kind of stands out uh, top of the heap right now. Um, and then, yeah, uh, left there uh, last year, joined a company called Litmus Automation. Uh, I got into the IIoT side of things. I got back into ISA, this time on the, uh, the divisional side. Um, so did the smart, smart manufacturing and IoT division. Um, and then, yeah, and then uh, about a month or so ago, Unfortunately, you know, some things didn't work out. So went into a bit of free agency. I'm kind of happy to announce I'm out of free agency. Can't say where I'm going just yet. Still dotting the the I's and crossing the T's, but uh, I will be starting somewhere January 3rd. So really looking forward to it. I'm really excited to kind of get in with this company because I think it's uh, a little bit different than what I've been doing before. And uh, they're doing some really cool stuff. So looking forward to it. Awesome. Glad to hear on that uh, that last point. I'm sure we'll... We'll find out shortly where you're going. But uh, Ryan, if I can dig into an earlier uh, point or transition, right? So going from the technical aspects uh, into sales, I was just curious, what was your perspective, thoughts at the time? How did the transition go? What was, you know, maybe the learning curve? And I think, you know, I'm asking that to get a perspective for someone who might be in a technical position and is looking to get perhaps into sales or maybe just learn about the opportunities on that side of things. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, going from where I was to, uh, you know, the first sales job I had, which was an inside sales job, um, you kind of get sucked into those types of jobs. It usually happens by, you know, somebody being really good in the technical side of things and also being able to talk to people and you say, wow, that'd be a great person to put on the tech support desk. And you start doing the tech support desk. And then they notice that, you know, you're still doing really well. And then they're like, you know what, let's just, let's move you over to inside sales. And next thing you know, you're actually, you're working inside sales, you're, you're calling out to people. It's uh, it was a bit of a transition. Um, you know, I always kind of like dealing with problem solving and especially, you know, the, the company I was working with, uh, did sensors, controllers. I mean, my 20, I did 20 years in instrumentation controls, 
Um, so that's that's been the the backbone of what I've done. Um, but I, I've always liked the smaller side, dealing with you know the calibration, the configuration of that. But the really fun part I always found was actually seeing how these could fit into the larger applications. You know, getting somebody to call you on the phone and say, "Hey, I've got this. I'm not entirely sure how to do it. What do you think?" I mean, that's uh, that was kind of the way to go. So that's kind of how I, I made that progression. And then once you hit inside sales, then the question is, okay, do you, do you like kind of staying on there or now do you want to go out and actually see the, the applications? That's where you transition to the, uh, the inside sales position. Could you just uh, to define a little bit better inside sales, I, I certainly have a, a high level understanding of uh, what it is, but uh, I guess outside sales is you're reaching out to potential customers, kind of end users for those devices. What is inside sales? Could you paint us a, a picture? Well, back in the day, and uh, this is you know twenty years ago when I started. Uh, yeah, you, you used to split out between outside and inside sales. Uh, inside sales would be the ones sitting on the phone. Um, they'd be taking mostly incoming calls, handling quotes, um, you know, a lot of the administrative stuff on the back end. Outside sales were the guys that were out going to see the clients, um, you know, making the relationships, being on site, finding new applications, and that. It's uh, there's been a big change in the way the industry has kind of gone since then. Uh, you still have inside sales. Uh, inside sales today is more of a an administrative type job. So you know they're they're taking in the incoming that we call it incoming demand. So anybody calling in, uh, they're handling those those questions that are there. They might be doing quotes or configurations for some of the the outside salespeople. Um, but I mean, like look at us right now. We're you know on a Zoom call. Not um, the pandemic for all its you know bad sides. Had you know has had a good side of the fact that it's, it's increased teams and that. So I mean, we've also seen um, the rise of kind of what's called telesales. So inside sales being the the uh, you know the side of the state doing the the administrative stuff. Telesales is really an outside salesperson stuck inside. Um, best way to kind of put it, they go out, they call, they handle the smaller stuff. Um, and you know, I say handle the smaller stuff, but I mean, I remember Bettler, we had somebody who was dealing with you know six figured contracts on a telesales job. Um, you know, so very capable in what they can do, but. You know, it always used to be the the thought that if you're going to get the big jobs, it's got to be the inside guy doing it. We now see this split. And, you know, we see splits all over as, as people start to specialize. But, yeah, that's that's kind of the big big split between the three of them. Gotcha. Absolutely. And, and if I can just add to that, because I think Ryan did a really good job. Most distributors, OEMs, will kind of have that middle layer of specialists or applications engineers who are more focused on the technology, a very specific stack of technology. And while they may have some number of dollars or quotas that they are supposed to help with, their main goal historically has been as support for the inside and also the outside uh, outside sales engineers as they go out and quote the, these very specific offerings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you'd see um, sales engineers, application engineers, um, technical support, really, and it kind of varies on there. A tech support person is really usually a person that is just kind of saying they're answering questions as they come in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a sales engineer in that is usually working shoulder to shoulder with one of the outside people or even one of the telesales people to try to get those jobs, you know, make sure everything's going to work when it actually gets out there. What's the, Ryan, if I can ask you like this perspective, what's the, the learning curve? Or I guess like what are, what does a program for someone getting into sales look like, right? So if I go and look at uh, a career in automation sales, like for example, at, you know, Siemens, Rockwell, Keyens, kind of the usual larger companies, Metler Toledo as well. Is there like a, a preset curriculum that someone coming in with like, let's say an electrical engineering background or maybe a process engineering background would go through in order to ramp up in sales? Like what does that 
I guess, like process entail? I'm, I'm really curious about those uh, programs. Yeah, I mean, you could have, um, I mean, you could almost have like an apprenticeship. I mean, we call it apprenticeship, but it's, it's really an inside sales job. Um, you know, just handling that incoming demand is a lot easier to deal with. You're getting somebody that's coming to you saying, I would like to buy this and your job is just to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. So you can go that route. Um, you know, it's with anything. I mean, you can try to learn to program your own PLCs. You probably have a certain amount of success, maybe not great success, but yeah, usually what ends up happening is there's, um, you know, week long courses, um, you know, maybe these specializing in certain areas as well. Um, I did, uh, the Dale Carnegie course, uh, 15 years ago. And I really hate trying to like look back at these past times. It's making me feel old. But I did Dale Carnegie about 15 years. That was kind of the foundation of, of what I did getting into sales. Uh, and then there's, I mean, constant sales training. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where you could probably fall asleep for 90% of it, but there's that 10% that kind of keeps you awake and you're like, ooh, I'm going to do that next time. And that's that's kind of what you take forward. But yeah, building a good base. Um, there's a lot of great courses out there. Um, I mean, I've seen, I know cpc up here was running sales courses um i know up here in canada we've got the Canadian professional sales association uh, i'm sure there's a counterpart down in the u.s that does something like that where they have uh, courses that are specifically developed for the beginners um the intermediates and then starting to get into specializations uh, negotiation courses um you know account development courses uh you know large accounts small accounts everything like that but yeah, that, that sort of progression is how you go. It's not one where you're dealing with a, you know, a longer sort of degree type program or anything like that, but the shorter courses really kind of help, you know, bump you up a step every, every time you take something like that. Very interesting. I, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that there's so much, how to say it, like structured information around sales. And I guess maybe that's a good transition into my next question, right? So I think that the struggle that many, I want to say, not just engineers, but technical people face in their career, maybe like their need to or want to transition to their own business, right, is they become really good at executing, whether it is PLC programming, like electrical design, it could be any like technical skills. And then I think they, the typical path, right, at least from the people that I've talked to, is they have a really solid relationship with a single client or maybe just a couple of clients and so they get their first contract, their first job, and then they struggle sort of to develop that into a business because, and again, this is just my perspective, but they struggle to kind of reach out other prospects be, due to lack of better for worse sales, right? Like they don't know how to outreach. They don't know how to create demand. They don't know how to create maybe inbound sales. They don't know how to go to a different site and demonstrate their skills. So what's, well, I guess like my, my question would be like, how applicable would these trainings be like, first of all, like for that scenario and how would you approach maybe like marketing yourself and creating that sales funnel if you're on like a smaller scale, because I'm assuming it would be a little bit different than, you know, some of these larger corporations. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it is going to be diff different in the scale that you're kind of approaching out there. Um, you know, I think one of the things to always look for is, you know, Mettler was, again, Mettler's, I refer back to Mettler because they were a marketing and sales company that just had products beside them. Um, you know, they're an absolute powerhouse there and the training they put, it was great. But I mean, you look at what they did and they had about four dimensions that they did segmentation on um, to go after specific clients in specific ways. So one of the things we always try to look for whenever you're trying to develop, um, like, you know, like you said, try, try to break out of that first or second client is to kind of look at past that client to say, okay, 
where are my next targets? Um, you know, the, I think the one place where people tend to struggle with sales is they kind of look at it as, okay, I'm just going to pick up the phone. I'm going to start calling people over and over and over. Um, it's a brute force way to do things. It's going to work. It's going to take a lot of work, but you will get results in the end. Uh, if you're going to try to do sales and get out there, I mean, the first thing you need to do to identify is, is what you do well, what you do better than people that are out there, uh, and then try to find out where you can then apply those uh, those skills uh, you know, outside of your, your existing clients. Uh, if you can start to to plan out what your territory is going to look like or what you want the next five years to look like, it's going to make things a lot easier. So if you wanted to say, okay, I want, I've got two clients right now. In the next two years, I want to triple that to six clients. So I want to pick up two new clients a year. First off, you're going to ask, you know, where do I do well? Where are my clients right now? Uh, are there existing clients or potential clients that are out there that look exactly the same? And they probably are. And you know, if there are existing ones that look exactly the same, can I leverage what I've learned here to go after those ones? So there's a lot of different ways you can then approach, you know, be very specific with your approaches, try to take lessons learned from your existing clients. So go talk to your clients, say, you know, have a casual conversation. Hey, why do you, why do you actually pay me? You know, what am I doing to actually earn your business? Take those learnings and apply it. Um, the other nice thing is we can look at associations. We can look at, um, you know, groups, what have you, try to hang out where they are, be the technical experts, um, try to create what's, you know, what we try to refer to as incoming demand. So if you're the specialist and you're saying a lot of smart things in a forum or an association, your client that you're trying to get out to might actually just come back to you and say, listen, you sound like you know what you're talking about. Let's have a good discussion. I mean, if that doesn't work, then, you know, you got to try to approach them. And, you know, it, it will depend on who you're going after as to how you're kind of approaching in that respect. And I guess to try and break that response down a little bit, where would you allocate your time knowing, I guess, the different, uh, so I guess, sources of medium today? So you can, obviously, you've mentioned you can cold call. You can also maybe like visit sites. You can create content on social media. You can go to trade shows. You've mentioned also you can go into organizations. You know, and we'll talk about ISA a little bit and maybe the opportunities there. What's, you know, like someone who's just getting started, do you think that a good approach is to try and be present in all those uh, kind of channels to pick one? To, like what's, how would you uh, get started if you were like a technical expert trying to land clients uh, today? Yeah, I would be very selective in, in how I did it. Um, social media, I think, is probably one of the best ways to do something like that. Um, so, I mean, as I mentioned in the past month, uh, my sales job is consists of selling myself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, maybe take out of context and not sound very good, but for the most part, <laughs> we're going to stick with that, that line on there. So, you know, one thing I really discovered was, I mean, social media had a massive impact. Um, I did not have much in the way of, you know, going out to send out applications uh, to try to connect with recruiters and that. A lot of what I got was the connection, connectivity that I'd done uh, through LinkedIn uh, and then through other social media aspects. So a lot of that had worked out really well. Uh, for me, if I'm going after a, uh, a new market, new segment of that, um, I'm going to work with LinkedIn. Uh, I'm going to work with um, you know, any other forum that might be out there that is popular with that community. Uh, I will do some sort of, well, trade shows, Trade shows are always iffy. Uh, trade shows, it can be real hit and miss. Um, you know, I think we've seen a real 
resurgence in trade shows. I don't know if it's because everybody was tired of being cooped up for the past two years and they're just getting out there or if uh, they're actually going to be useful. Um, I find there's the generalized trade shows that are, are going, you know, for the most part are gone. Uh, we see some big ones that are still around. They do well. The specialized trade shows where it's essentially a conference with a trade show attached, I find those work much, much better because you tend to get a very concentrated audience in it. So mm-hmm. if you're going out to, um, like for pharmaceutical side, ISP, the International Society of Pharmaceutical Engineers, holds conferences all over the world, um, they will have a trade show attached. And for you know a, an exorbitant amount of money because it's pharmaceutical, uh, you can set a booth and hang out with all those guys for a couple of days. And that usually ends up doing quite well. Uh, in terms of cold calling, cold calling is one of those ones where there's usually better ways to do it. Uh, there are services out there. I mean, cold calling, you don't need to be an expert. The idea behind somebody doing cold calling is they want to get that hook in there and then they want to take that and they want to pass over. A, good, a person that knows what they're doing cold calling will make a ton of calls. They'll call you up. They'll be like, hey, Vlad, you know, I want to sell you this. And you'd be like, hey, that sounds interesting. You say, okay, Vlad, now that I got your attention, I'm going to pass you over to Dave and Dave's going to then, you know, actually pull this off. So there's uh, services out there. I mean, Fiverr is probably a good one, F-I-V-E-R-R. Uh, they have you know, cold calling specialists on there, rent them out for, you know, uh, pennies, on the di- pennies on the dollar sort of thing. It's not you with your experience on there and doing all these cold calls. You put together the script, you stick it at somebody on Fiverr, they run through it, call 100 people in an area, and next thing you know, you've got leads coming in. So I would probably do it that way. Um, and that's probably some of the best the best ways to divvy it up. Social media, uh, forums, um, trying to get on-site if you can, cold calling, leave it to a specialist. I, I think these are all really good points. I know Vlad has got, you know, a thousand questions. I, I just want to kind of throw in a couple of a couple of things because I, I think Ryan knows. I think a bunch of people know. I spent a lot of time in my life uh, talking to people in, in sales in sales tangential uh, roles. So I think the question Vlad asked in the beginning was a good question. I think that that is kind of generally focused towards the people who are or have been in systems integration, and maybe they're part of a, I don't know, let's go crazy and say a 20-person systems integration company, say, hey, I'm way more talented than the $50 or $60 an hour I'm getting paid because I'm getting rented out or sold out for $150 an hour, for instance. I want to go make that because I think my value is there. And so they go leave with, with a client. And and I think Ryan's comments towards towards how do you scale it, I think that th- those are really topical. Um, but but kind of to that point, at some point you have to realize either you're going to grow and scale the company above where you are, right? So you might be able to have two or three clients and you do all of the service and programming and things that they need. And you're probably going to be 2000 plus hours busy over the course of the year, but that may be 2000 hours over the course of, of eight months um, because they're all they're all in the same industry. Um, if at some point you're going to grow and scale above that, you're going to have to bring other people on. And I want to call that out because I've seen the crux of many kind of small systems integrators starting up is, well, now I'm not doing the work. Now I'm the manager of the people doing the work and I have to make sure the work is done and I have to make sure that I hire the people and they're trained and supplied and all of those things to do the work. And then I have to go find work for everyone to do. 
And if there's more work than my now group of call it five people have, I am the person who gets to go out there and do it either right, wrong or indifferent. That is kind of how the scalability of a systems integrator or a niche service provider is. Um, mm -hmm. I think Ryan made a bunch of really good comments about kind of Fiverr and, and social media and everything else like that. All the cold calling in the scripts, I guess in, in my mind, I see that more towards the we are a, a medium to large size integrator or maybe we're selling products, right? So, so hardware, software, there are lots of groups selling things on the technical side that are not um, th that are not systems integration uh, organizations. And so I think that, that that's really valid. I, I just, I kind of want to make the delineation so that uh, we are talking to perhaps a broader group of people as opposed to uh, j just specifically talking about uh, services uh, with integration. Uh, okay. Vlad, and please continue. And I wish one, one last point. I mean, if we're talking about systems integrators, there's the outside of the box stuff as well. I mean, you know, the, the vendors that come in to sell you stuff, you know, as a system, systems integrator, they're, you know, in many cases, they might be looking for people to integrate their equipment. And if you say to them, hey, listen, if you have a small job, and it's probably going to be that way, it'll be, you know, one PLC or something small like that, you know, bring me in, I'll do it, I'll put your equipment in and away you go. Um, you know, it's it's a good way to kind of get put in the job in, into the company. But yeah, I mean, your vendors are might be a good way, you know, just creating a network out there is, is kind of what you want to do. Makes sense. Uh, Ryan, we have a question on the YouTube channel to the earlier conversation we had about inside sales. So we're wondering... Do you ever have a uh, conflict of interest on a project where inside sales had to compete with one another to get the project? So they're asking for a global company with many divisions. Probably this can happen. And how is it typically handled? Oh yeah, big time and bad. Like yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's always. I mean, it always happens. Um, you know, I've ran uh, sales channels where we ran direct, we ran indirect, we ran telesales. Um, you know, we ran three different channels and there'd be three different methods of, uh, you know, conflict on there, um, with all three of them coming into there. Really, it comes down to defining the rules early. So to say, okay, here are the rules that we've got in place. Here is, you know, where, here's who we're going to default to if it comes into this area. Um, and really it's, it's just kind of trying to stick with that. Yeah. I mean, at some point you're going to have to kind of, you know, <laughs> basically try to play negotiator a few times say, okay, listen, you know, let's, let's, you know, the, the outside guy has this, you on the inside desk, we'll give you a bit of credit for this. We know you've done some work, um, but you know, flip over to the outside and, and let's go on there. As long as, I mean, you're never going to be 100% fair, but as long as you try to manage it that way, it is good. Now you do have to be careful because there is antitrust uh, issues on there. So um, when you get into a, a situation where you've got a direct and indirect sales channel, you can't really kind of say, okay, we're going to back off. We're going to send it out to the, uh, the indirect guys. Essentially you could get into trouble for something like that. So you do have to be very careful about, uh, you know, playing favorites and kind of shoving everything down a single channel. But if you have clear rules in place beforehand to say, okay, you know, you can't sell below list or you can't do this, mm -hmm. uh, in these situations, again, you, you know, it can be touchy from a legal aspect, but it's usually the way to go on there. Absolutely. And I was going to say, if I may throw in another example, right? So, so outside of just the organization and the channels themselves, I've seen, especially for like multinational companies, right? They may be going to look at pricing, you, you know, let's say within the territory, let, let's say I own the state of Virginia as my territory for, for X, mm -hmm. right? And then they have a location in territory 
uh, in Virginia, they've got a location in Ontario and they've got a location in, I don't know, Germany, right? And so, so they're going to the same company, looking at the pricing against all three of those and saying, hey, I could in theory go buy it from any one of these and I'm just going to go take the lowest price. And even if it ends up in the state of Virginia, they could go in theory, buy it in Canada, ship it to Germany and then send the end product over to Virginia um, because it's cheaper that way. Um, those are much more difficult. Th those are like well above the, the inside sales uh, pay grades. Th those are more kind of executives getting frustrated with other executives. And it either comes down to the, hey, we are going to go through the process of, you know, giving everyone maybe a little bit of credit or maybe more realistically, you know, you're just SOL and it's going to the area that sold it. And <laughs> Dave, you own the state of Virginia you are going to have to go through and service it because we sold it through one of our global multinational partnerships that we, we have some sort of a large global agreement with. Yeah. Those, those guys are the worst. I hated it. always, always hated dealing with that because <laughs> yep. you would always run into something where you walk out on site and there's, you know, so equipment out there. You're like, how did this get here? And they're like, Oh, we bought it through so-and-so would be a such, such and such. Yep. Uh, yeah. Dave, to your point, I mean, most of the time it, it just like, it gets put through. Uh, there's usually some stuff that gets sorted out in the back end. Uh, credit is given where credit is due. Um, yeah, and there's there's always something like the, the the local guys will usually get a few bucks, and it's like, okay, just take that and you get all the service work on it, yep. and that ends up working. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess like just to provide like a quick perspective, never having been in sales, I've certainly seen salespeople be frustrated when you know, larger companies want to purchase something at a cheaper price out of a different state, right? Because I could see how that, uh, how to say it, eats their commission, so to speak. But I, I guess I didn't know how the, the mechanics play. Oh, in, it's on, brutal. On the sales side. So uh, I, I think we agreed at some point, uh, maybe a little bit later, we'll, we'll talk about sales compensation because that, mm -hmm. that may be interesting to other people. I will give a preview of it. Basically, uh, everyone is frustrated with salespeople, but in sales compensation, uh, whenever the sales compensation changes, the salespeople always lose. That, that, that is basically the goal of sales compensation is find ways to reduce what we're paying salespeople. <laughs> yes and no. Yeah, we can talk about it later. There are certain ways to get around it, but yeah, in, in many cases, it, uh, that is the, the case. Right. Maybe to go back to some of the challenges, you know, in uh, doing sales for yourself and maybe figuring out how to market yourself a little bit better as a small to medium size systems integrator, but it could also be uh, whatever tech business, right? Um, I, I want to say like one of the common mistakes that I've certainly made myself is, or, or I guess like a question for you, right? Should you specialize in a specific skill, right? So looking at the stack for automation, for example, you see a lot of people starting off with, let's say, doing PLC and HMI programming or doing SCADA work, right? And then the natural kind of thought, and, and as I said, I, I've fallen into that category, is you want to provide now, well, we can also do PLC, HMI, we can also do SCADA, we can do MES, we can also install maybe a robot and kind of do everything while I'm a single person and trying to brand myself as this jack of all trades expert, right? And so it creates kind of like this difficult, um, and you know, I realize that it creates a challenge. Whereas where you reach out to someone in, let's say, engineering at the manufacturing floor, you're trying to sell them yourself as being the expert at everything. Like, what are your thoughts about maybe specializing? Kind of, what's the right approach to figure out how to 
reach out to the right person in the organization because I feel even going PLC and HMI, let's say maintenance or troubleshooting is very different than doing integration of like SCADA MES systems, right? Like the people are going to be different. Like what are your thoughts around specializing versus maybe having a broad uh, approach to sales? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anytime we look at sales, um, the more specialized you can be, the better. Um, you tend to speak the language a little bit clearer, especially if you're dealing with various verticals. So um, into the mining, into the oil and gas. I mean, those two speak essentially different languages most of the time. They have different applications all over the place. Um, now, when we talk about specialization, there are a couple of different ways you can go. There's sort of a, a horizontal specialization where you're kind of dealing, let's say, level two applications only. I mean, that's that's all you're dealing. You're dealing with the, the PLCs, the SCADA and systems and that. Or we could look at sort of a vertical or a vertical specialization. So vertical specialization would be the entire stack, um, but you'd be sticking with a certain industry. So in that case, what, you, what you're going to offer is essentially full service, like a full service, uh, full uh, suite of services, sorry, but specific to that application. To so say, okay, I can walk in, you know, I'm very specific to mining. I know how to do uh, everything from the, you know, the, the crushing, to the weighing, to the flotation, to the you know, water treatment, everything. We've done this a million times. I can handle top to bottom. Or you can say, well, I am, you know, an expert in PLCs. I know every single solitary PLC out there. You bring me in, I'll fix it. Um, so, I mean, that's that's the two different ways we can approach specialization on there. And it really kind of depends on on what you want to do. The jack of all trades route, uh, I mean, you're, you really try to spread your, you're, you're spreading yourself pretty thin on there. Um, it becomes a lot more difficult because you're not giving a, you know, Okay, let me let me put it this way. If you're going out as a generalized person, say you're approaching a mining application, you say, I'm a jack of all trades, I know how to do everything and anything, put me in here. You're gonna come up against people that specialize in those areas who are gonna come in and say, I know how to do these five applications that you have in this uh, this this industry. Between the two of them, they're gonna they're gonna look typically at the, the specialist, not the generalist, because they want to deal with somebody that actually knows how to put everything in there properly. So you're gonna encounter those with any you know any application you're coming against as a generalist. You're always gonna get beat by the specialists that are out there. So uh, you know, look at specialization as much as you can. But again, there are a couple different ways that we can categorize uh, a specialty. Interesting. Certainly gives me a lot to think about. Dave, what are your thoughts? I laugh because Vlad and I have had this conversation, I don't know, 300 times so far this year. Um, I, I feel like Vlad asks every guest who it's even uh, like mildly applicable to. And, and I would say generally, I think all of our guests ab absolutely recommend specializing. Um, and you, you can special, but I would say kind of be beyond just kind of specializing on a technology stack. I've also know people who specialize in an industry, right? So, so they could be the people who, you know, at your oil and gas facility, you call for the, the middle 90% of all problems, right? It's like, hey, I'm having a problem. I don't particularly know what it is, but let me call this person because I know that they're very good. I, I would say, um, and I think I've said it on the show before, that being the person who comes in and saying, hey, any facility, I can go solve any problem you have you just kind of, you sound insane, right? Like you are absolutely unbelievable. It's like, well, no, you can't go solve any problem that I have. Most industries absolutely want someone on the technical side who has specific industry knowledge, right? There are people who have, you know, technology knowledge or, or process uh, or other knowledge that may be applicable, but generally they want someone, you know, an oil and a gas 
organization generally wants someone who knows what an oil and gas refinery looks like, who want, who knows what, you know, uh, every, you know, section within their facility looks like water, wastewater, wants people who have been at a water and wastewater treatment facility before, and ideally only work in water, wastewater facilities, despite the fact that many of the processes are all very similar processes, that they want the comfort of knowing if you're a technical person that you've been there and you've done that and, and you can go provide what uh, what they're looking for. So, so I would agree uh, and kind of parrot Ryan's comments is if you would like to be successful as you look to uh, as you look to move into the future you, you need to go find something that you want to do kind of your patch of dirt or your patch of technology or industry or the internet and say hey this this is where i am i th this is what i work on i am substantially the best person you know who you can get in to come do this job everyone else can can line up behind me and if you can go stake that claim then you're going to find better and more opportunities uh, within your chosen field and chosen area. Yeah, and and better money too. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. If you're going to go the generalist route, typically you're going to be trying to get to a price floor on there. <clears throat> you're going to try to, you know, be the cheapest one out there to to get any of the jobs. If you're the person that knows everything and walks in and says, "I can solve this in ten minutes. I can be out. You'll be up and running." They'll pay you whatever they can to to make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's a reputation that comes along with that as well. I mean, I think, you know, we were, we were talking uh, before, I kind of mentioned there's a great episode from the Freakonomics uh, podcast where he talks about uh, long snappers in the NFL. And, mm -hmm. you know, these are the guys that step out on the field, you know, half a dozen times during the game. All they have to do is take the ball, hike it about, you know, 10 yards back to the quarterback or the punter or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's all they do. I mean, they're specialists. This position only exists because you know, they become masters at their trades and, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's enough of a point deficit uh, by having somebody actually, actually screwed up. Um, you know, great little one. Again, if you get a chance, uh, a great one to check out about uh, specialization and how, how that kind of works in there. Absolutely. And, and I would like to say uh, to, to the long snapper uh, comment, I, I was laughing last week, a couple of weekends ago, I was watching some, some NFL football and long snappers at this point in the NFL you're not even allowed to touch them, right? Like they just snap the ball. And if you as an opposing uh, lineman or in the defense touch them, it, it's a 15 yard penalty, right? Um, so if, if we were to do it all over again, maybe we all become long snappers. Uh, like, th 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 that's, that's good money. Yeah, they, they do. <laughs> they get paid good money for not being able to get touched. And uh, they, <laughs> I imagine similar to punters and kickers, the, the reason they get paid so much is because you never hear about them because they just continue to do their job consistently. Well, yeah. Yeah. You hear about those guys. Something's gone horribly, horribly wrong. Right. Maybe going back to the automation examples from, uh, from football. So that uh, our audience has a better way to relate. But uh, Vlad, another, not a sports fan. Not a sports <laughs> fan, definitely. But I have to read up on that example. I'm curious. Uh, Ryan, if, um, you know, like, I guess, like, another challenge that I see, at least, like, myself facing is when you reach out to the people inside of an organization, you must develop, I guess, like, the sense of who's able to approve of a project, Right. And so one of the, the thoughts, let's say, with content that you're putting out there, let's say, as a technical expert, is that it reaches a, I want to say, like 90% of a technical audience, maybe versus, uh, and I've just made up that percentage, but a, in large, a technical audience versus a, 
uh, I want to say the decision makers, right? And, and that could be like different depending on what you're putting out, who you're talking to. But what are your thoughts on, you know, selling yourself to the people inside of the organization from kind of like the bottom up? So reaching out to maybe like more technical people that can relate to your services and then finding out the contact that might be able to, you know, pay for that project versus going all the way to, let's say, like a plant manager who then sees the problem that happens with, let's say, like engineering and maintenance that may need uh, help with your services. Like, what are your thoughts on how to reach out to kind of like various stakeholders inside of that organizational ladder? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to reach out, you know, I, I kind of look at it as two different ways. If you're reaching out to the lower levels, I and mean, the lower level people are there. Yeah, and if, it's, if you're selling small products, they're, they can approve it, no problem. I mean, put it on a credit card, and away you go. Um, and they can help facilitate things. So if you get the engineer, if you get the technician, and they're like, oh, man, yeah, let's, let's get Vlad in here. He knows what he's doing. He can get everything rolling. It's stopping there unless you can convince the person that's actually signing the check. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't do like a 90-10, I think is, is extreme in something like that. I mean, a 50-50 is really good because you're going to get the engineers that say, okay, I know Vlad. I know he can come in here. I know he can do this. You're going to get the guys that signed the check to say, I know that Vlad you know, has this reputation. He's good to go. My engineers say that he is good to, like, he will work well in here. Let's, you know, let's put this through. But if you do the 90-10 approach, if you just sign to the lower levels, you've then got to do a second um, sales routine and actually sell back up to the, the higher levels because they're going to have to they're going to have to come in and sign the check at that point. So yeah, I'd yeah I'd watch the selling to lower levels overall. I think a lot of salespeople, especially people who are just getting into it, are very comfortable with that, um, and especially those coming out of the technical field, they're used to talking to other engineers, they're used to talking to the technicians, very comfortable in having those conversations not as comfortable having the conversations with the plant managers, uh, with operations, with finance, with the, you know, the people on that side of things. And that's, that's kind of the division that, that happens on there. And I think you, you kind of have to get out of your comfort zone to really kind of say, you know, here's how this is going to help those people out there. You have to, you have to empathize with them. You know, the, the technicians, the engineers are going to have one reason as to why they're bringing you into that plant. Operations are going to have a completely different reason. It might be because you are going to work really quickly. You're going to be on call. Uh, you're local. If something goes wrong, you can be there in 20 minutes. You can get the plant back up running in an hour, and operations are going to be super happy. Um, you know, the finance side, they're going to be happy because maybe you're not, you know, amazingly expensive, or you don't have to fly in from God knows where to to actually do this job, uh, and you know, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, you're you're going to have to kind of step out of the comfort zone, really try to engage those higher ups, and really try to to look at you know look at things from their perspective as well. Absolutely. And, and if I if I may tag on every time I look at what content looks like, especially when I'm selling something that, that is technical. Right. So if I'm selling something like a SCADA or, or an MES or, or PLC, something along that line, or I'm talking to people who sell it, I kind of look at like three funnels of content. Right. We talked a bit about segmentation. I kind of segment the groups that, that I go and want to put content out for. Right. So, so we talked about the technical people. Right. That's probably your technical folks, your engineers up through the engineering manager. At some point kind of above that is I kind of think like the operations manager, the the plant manager, the general manager, uh, what that looks like. So they generally care about kind of broader ideas. They I'm going to say, generally speaking, they don't want to get into the nitty gritty details that they may or may not even care about the nitty gritty details. I almost always only find bad things happen 
when plant managers, general managers want to get into the nitty gritty details, typically that means someone has screwed up terribly uh, far below them. And then the third funnel I look to are, is the is the person who writes the checks, right? So, so that may be uh, a general manager, that may be a comptroller, that may be a CFO, something along those lines. You have to talk to them in dollars and cents. It's like, Yes, I understand that we want to go through, call it a $50,000 PLC upgrade. Yes, I understand that we need to upgrade it for all of these reasons. But why should I spend $50,000 on the chance that maybe we go down at some point in the next five years? It's going to cost me more money now to go down. Business needs the product. Why should I go spend the money down? So I, I find that you need to be able to have conversations at all three of those levels if you want to be successful in kind of the medium to, to long term. But all of that becomes where are you selling products, right? If, if we're selling something to Ryan's point that, that's at the five or $10,000 level, or there's some sort of hourly service agreement because you're just always going into the site fixing things that they have wrong, Generally speaking, as long as they like you and they know that you know what you're doing, they're going to continue to call you. It's it's as you go look to expand those that business and those offerings that you're going to have to go become more comfortable speaking to different groups, which is absolutely difficult for, for most people, which is why there aren't a ton of people who are professional sales folks, uh, specifically within you know industrial automation, manufacturing on the technical side. And, and you get some weird reasons sometimes like, and this is the good part about talking to people on that side of the, the, you know, that side of the company. Um, and you may actually find, just have a quick conversation. Like what, why can't I break into these guys? And you might go mm -hmm. to a purchaser and say, I have been trying to do business here forever. Like I know I've, I've got this, yada, yada, yada. And they might say, well, oh, we, we've got a certain amount of, you know, people that we buy off of. We don't add new people in. Mm -hmm. Hey, if you want to do business with us, you have to go talk to Bob's company down the street. Bob's going to subcontract you and he's going to get you. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it might be just that. I mean, it costs a lot for these companies to actually bring in new yeah. um, new suppliers. Mm -hmm. So it might just be that, or you might find that I've got to be in the supplier book or I've got to be an approved supplier. And that requires me uh, submitting a commercial general liability um, form and all this other stuff, you know, dot, dot, dot the I's and cross the D's. Right so yeah, I think if you start having conversations with those people, you might find it opens doors really quickly and might open some doors that you just didn't know about before. Absolutely. I, I did a job uh, with a great group, right? Like we went in, we a hundred percent agreed on, on everything, what it was going to look like as proof of concept. And they had, I've worked with this, especially like larger companies over the years, they, they reduce and reduce and reduce the number of people they just buy from. Right. So some of these groups, fortune 500 companies, like they cut checks to 50 people every year. And if you want to work for them, you either have to be one of those 50 people or you have to go subcontract out under those 50 people, which is super, uh, which is really good if you're one of those 50 people, because generally you get to hammer the people's rates down and then double their cost. And uh, and yeah, so, so I, I work for some groups. And if you find engineering managers on the OT side or systems architects or things like that who are super in tune, they will be able to walk you through the process of, hey, we'd love to work for you. We'd love to work with you. We think you're the right people to, to do this. And because we think you're the right people to do this, you have to go talk to Bob, right? Like Bob does all of this stuff. We 10 times a year go through the process of doing this, with Bob. And 
Bob, like, like, and then he's like, let me go connect you with Bob. And they send an email and then Bob hammers you on the rate. And you're like, this is my lowest. And they're like, okay, we, we can do it at that. And then they go double the price and charge it to, uh, char- charge it to the end users. So absolutely that. And, and to, to that point, I guess when I'm having conversations uh, with folks and, and I forget uh, where I heard someone talk about this. Uh, I I always like to like say, hey, does the, you know, you, you go through the conversation. They're like, yes, we want to do this. And you're like, awesome. You know, what does the process look like? Like, what is the first step in going through this process? And then you have to ask the question, okay, what's the next step? Like you have to get and understand the, the entirety of the, the process. And the process may be you send me a, you, you send me a proposal I say yes. I sign it. I send it back to you. You do the work, and we'll go cut you a check. Right? That, that's the simplest. Sometimes we got to have to go get you in as a vendor. Sometimes we have to go take you through through ten steps, and you got to go talk to IT, and you guys have to duke it out, and it's going to take a year and a half. And that then I find it's always good to understand what the whole process is internally of an organization because then it gives you the opportunity to decide: yes, I want to work with these guys. It is worth doing it. There have been three or four groups. It's like, this would be a great opportunity, but I'm not going to go invest 200 hours of sales process in order to, to get this, you know, first $10,000 worth of uh, pilot up and running because th- there's a 30% chance you guys are going to say no. And I've spent more time trying to get the pilot up and running with you guys than I did doing the actual process. Yeah. Sometimes it's just, it's better just to walk away. Yeah. I've had those before where, you get some customers that will impose 120 day terms or something stupid like that. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm out. You guys call me when you decide to change. Yep. I will say, uh, especially on the integrator side, I have seen, uh, especially if you do subcontracting work, uh, it's not, I'll call it uncommon to see there on the terms, you basically agree to only get paid 30 or 60 or 90 days after that person gets paid. So, so you're basically agreeing to potentially never get paid if that group never gets paid. I personally, I will agree to terms. I won't agree to terms that set me up to potentially never get paid, right? I'm not going to hold two years worth of uh, worth of cash on a project um, because, yeah, I, th- that is not what I'm going to do. I've worked for organizations that have lived with, you know, net 90, net 120 for Boeings and Airbuses and those of the world, and they're always late, right? They're always 150 or 180 days. They're always mm-hmm. past due. But you continue to sell them things and services because that's the business model, and the business model just assumes that your customers are going to take six months to pay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You'll 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 make it somewhere. Yeah. I know with those companies, we used to have a, a surcharge onto those guys. Yeah. yeah. We'll we'll do 120, but it's going to cost you extra. Yeah. yeah and no and, and sometimes yeah. they pay it, and sometimes they just don't pay it. And uh, yes, uh, a- a- absolutely, a- absolutely. Uh, Vlad, you ever worked with a company that didn't want to pay you for six months? I have fortunately not have had that experience. Uh, I, I've heard of some horror stories in the industry, but I've not myself been subject to that. And to some degree, maybe that's why it hasn't pushed me to learn all the ins and outs of those contracts uh, as much as I probably should. But so, uh, so, so funny, funny story. But before we, we move to the next topic, uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I was working for an organization. Uh, This organization, again, did a lot of work with Boeing and Airbus and things like that. And I came on and I was very early on in in the U.S. office. Um, So they're like, hey, we think we've got a bunch of money, like north of half a million dollars outstanding from one of these large companies. Here's the portal login and access uh, about that. 
And so I go and they were like $1.7 million uh, with outstanding. All of it had been, you know, past due, you know, 180 days or more. And I'm like, how can any organization lose, you know, one and a half million dollars beyond what what they think they're owed? What what sort of strange world do uh, do we live in with this? Yeah, high margin business at that point. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it, it was a high margin business, right? It, it has to be, especially if you're floating the cash uh, for six months. Vlad, do you want to talk about sales compensation or do you want to talk about uh, something else first? Well, I, I did want to like follow up, I guess, on the on the point of maybe getting out of the comfort zone to sort of reach those higher level, I want to say, individuals in an organization and kind of how would you approach that? So it, again, I think you know, we see a lot of um, people wanting to do systems integration on their own, right? And they start off in a, a, a single customer and they're getting their hourly rate, but then they're struggling again, at least in the conversations that I've had to maybe um, have the conversation of how can we bring an extra few people that would work under the same kind of like banner, right? And be, I don't know, either helpers or do some kind of, you know, if I'm doing SCADA work, then maybe they come in and help on the, the PLC HMI side. How do you get out of that uh, comfort zone and start having those conversations? Is there a way maybe to learn that a little bit better? Is there any resources that you would recommend? Or is it just trial by fire and hopefully, you know, not fall into one of those contracts that uh, you lose a lot of money on? What what would you, uh, how would you approach this? Yeah, I mean, there's the training is always good. Um, and again, there's sales organizations out there that have training specifically designed for, you know, talking to the uh, other levels of the organization. Um, but I mean, honestly, start with your own clients first. So I mean, if you are dealing with, you know, a, a company out there, you've always been working with the engineers, take a chance just to call up purchasing and say, listen, you know, we've been working with you for a couple of years. I'd love to sit down with you just for a half hour, just to see if we can, you know, if we can uh, simplify things a little bit, you know, get your input on a few items, um, maybe see if there's other areas where we might be able to contribute. They might come back to you and say, yeah, you know, this is great. We'd love to maybe get you onto a portal or we'd, you know, like maybe try to consolidate payments, make things easier on both sides. Or the best thing you're looking for is them to say, yeah, this is, this is awesome that you do this stuff. We're really having issues trying to find somebody. I mean, purchasing, they kind of get dragged for just signing checks and beating up on, uh, on you know, your margins and that. But I mean, in, in their day-to-day life, they're responsible for uh, matching a need in the system, right? So they, they need to find those people that are going to do those jobs or supply those products from the company. So they might have a few areas where they say, oh, we really need some help. Like, you know, they've, you're doing the skater work over in, um, let's see, up here, a brewery into the brew house. Uh, we really need somebody to handle the water treatment system out there. It's all the skater work that they need mm-hmm. to do out there. We haven't been able to find somebody. Out you go. But even just getting talking to those people, you just, just learning the language of what they speak, what their priorities are. And what kind of drives them to sign those checks? Um, that can probably be the biggest thing that you can do on there. Because then the next discussion you have with a purchaser, again, you're trying to put them back, put yourself in their shoes and say, you know, instead of saying, well, listen, you know, this, uh, this SCADA has a uh, one millisecond uh, response rate and uh, you know, two gigs of RAM and all this other stuff. And I'm sure I'm selling off that, uh, you know, I'm a little out of my depth on that stuff. But, uh, you know, uh-huh. they don't want to hear the technical side of things. They want to hear you say, okay, we have these in stock. You're not going to encounter supply chain issues. Um, we can get them programmed. We can get them running. And you won't be down for more than two hours. Or that's that's what they kind of want to hear. It's going to be a different language going from the, the technical side 
uh, out to the more the business side on there. And I think that's that's the summary block in, in many cases. Gotcha. No, that, that, that helps a lot. Appreciate that, Ryan. Um, I, I guess if we can shift gears a little bit and talk about ISA, just to change it up a little bit. So uh, Ryan and, and Dave, both of you are part of the ISA. Could you give us a synopsis, maybe some of the viewers who have not, uh, who are not aware of the ISA, what does the association do and kind of maybe what are some of the incentives, benefits of, of joining the ISA? Sure. Yeah. So ISA I've been with for way longer than I care to admit. Um, ISA is always an interesting one because is is horribly complicated. Nobody really knows how it actually works unless you're actually in there. Uh, and I always find that it's, it's a, one of the slights I have against ISA. They're very poor at kind of explaining this to the general public. So ISA is the International Society of Automation. Uh, they are, you know, they they set a lot of the standards that get rolled up into ANSI standards, into IEC standards, uh, everything like that. But they separate it into three pillars. One is sections. So that's by geography. Um, you know, if you want to go out to your local section, have a beer with the guys. Great social aspect. It used to be a lot bigger, I find, because, you know, there was that social social aspect. Uh, there was the ability to, you know, sit down for a presentation to learn a lot of this stuff. Much of that's kind of been replaced by, you know, by, by internet, by the internet and that. It's still some of the sections that you do find, especially in the bigger manufacturing towns, are usually pretty strong. So I know up here in Canada, we've got uh, the Sarnia section. The Sarnia section is like 100 people, uh, but each one of their meetings, they've got 50 of those people that come on out. Um, very tight-knit nice. community. Texas, I mean, the Will Do Page section, I, I know it's absolutely huge. I think it's above 1,000 members. Um, it's, it's crazy. So there's still some good stuff going down at the section levels. Um, you know, if you want to learn, if you want to meet people locally, sections are a great place to go to. The other side of that is division, uh, the division side of ISA. So division is the, like, you know, uh, Dave, you and I are in the smart manufacturing and IOT division. It is a technologically focused area of ISA. So they've got, um, the robotics division, they've got uh, pulp and paper. So they have it divided up by either by technology or by industry. So those are the divisions they'll get people that are like-minded together in the same room, virtually or otherwise, uh, talking about what's going on, uh, you know, helping to develop some technical reports, uh, pick out um, you know, potential areas where ISA might be able to help out, um, anything like that. So divisions, if you're into the technical side, this is why I got involved was I got into IoT, came out of instrumentation controls, really needed to learn stuff, dropped into there. Um, the uh, misconception is you need to be an expert to get into one of those and be involved. Absolutely not. I am by no means an expert in IoT and smart manufacturing, although I, you know, I play one in real life. Um, <laughs> but I have been lucky to be involved with those guys and learn a lot in a very short time. I mean, I'm the newsletter editor there. That's the job you get when you first start out in these places. And it works really well to get you get you learning there. Last but not least is standards practices within ISA. That's the um, that's where if you really want to dig in and help create standards that are going to be used worldwide, that's the area you want to be up to. So uh, if you thought like the technology section was um, you know very in depth, standards and practices is ten times more. Um, you know you you have to be really uh, nitpicky about what you say and how everything gets written down because again. That standard that gets developed in there, it's going to be translated to ANSI or IEC or wherever. So, mm -hmm. yeah, three different pillars. Again, worldwide community does really well, um, and honestly, uh, it's it's helped me throughout my career a lot. 
Absolutely. And if I may just uh, throw in, I think you did a much better job than I possibly could have to uh, to define uh, ISA and then what ISA does. Um, I will say if you guys are interested in taking a look at more ISA uh, or listen, uh, Jeff Winter, who is currently the division president, um, he was on about a year, maybe 14 months ago. Um, he got me into to ISA um, either by all of his like good thoughts about it or just by sheer will of continuing to talk about ISA um, as many times as Jeff and I did. But before I uh, finally ended up joining um, last year and we also had David Schultz, who was on four ish yep. weeks ago, who is the president elect of uh, of ISA and, and maybe. In 2023, we'll get the rest of the uh, the board members of ISA. We, we are actually getting pretty close to having every officer um, on at this point. We're probably about half a dozen away. And there are a bunch of different, uh, as as Ryan said, uh, good technical groups. I will say if you guys are, are members of ISA or if you guys want to go take a look at the Intech magazine, um, our division did the August uh, magazine. So every group got to write uh, kind of a, an article, 500 or 1,000 words thereabouts about uh, the, the specific technology. So uh, I wrote or I co-wrote the AR VR one, and we talked about cybersecurity, and we talked about a bunch of, of other really good articles in there. So you guys can go ahead and uh, take that uh, take a look at that. I would also say that if you guys are members, there are a number of like uh, conferences. I think there are two or three conferences that, that go on every year that ISA helps plan. I know there's at least one in-person conference. I don't know if, uh, if the division and everything else will be putting. I don't know if the online conferences will go to in-person uh, with ISA next year. Uh, that would have been a, a good question to ask Jeff or, or someone much smarter or probably more in tuned uh, than Ryan and I, unless Ryan uh, jumps in and says that, that he has an idea of, uh, of what's going on next year. But 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 there, yeah, he, he's, he's shaking his head. So uh, so good. I haven't missed that. We'll have to throw Jeff under the bus uh, Wednesday when we talk to him. But no, there are a bunch of great opportunities uh, to do listenings and, and learnings uh, throughout, the, throughout the course of the year, especially if you are kind of within ISA. They put out a bunch of great technical resources, and that's just one of a number of divisions that uh, that all exist uh, that all exist within ISA. And I think we've said ISA enough times to get Vlad to uh, to commit and sign up for that. Is is that correct, Vlad? Go on, Vlad. Yeah, I'm I'm signed up. Mm, Good. One of us. We, we, <laughs> Karim, Karim will just have to add that chanting in uh, uh, in in post production. I was looking at, uh, so there is a Montreal convention uh, in person, March 15th to 18th, 2023. Yeah, so, I, I and the Montreal sections, the- yeah, Montreal sections have been good. I mean, they're they're a smaller one, but uh, they've always been quite well. They've always done well. I'm trying to remember who's running right now. I think it's Richard. Oh, uh, he works, and I know that I can see his face, but I can't remember the name right now. Anyways, yeah, they, they usually run, a, a, I, I know they've been trying to get back into the small tabletop shows. Um, they got a good golf tournament. They try to do the in-person stuff. Montreal also, I mean, they've got to do, they do usually uh, one French, one English um, a seminar. Um, so yeah, it's always, always a, a good time to get out and enjoy the guys for sure. I was going to say that that's good. I couldn't possibly go because my, my French is terrible and by, ter- by terrible, I mean non-existent. So, uh, so, so that, that, that is, uh, that is good. I know, uh, I don't know a number, I, don't, I guess I don't know a ton of people who have been to the in-person ISA uh, since pandemic, but pre-pandemic, I know a number of people who were very involved uh, in, in local, in local chapters. So I guess we talk about all of that ISA stuff to tell people to, Hey, 
go out, uh, check out ISA, come join Ryan, Vlad, myself, Jeff, David, and well, almost everyone else that you know on the internet on the ISA uh, Smart Manufacturing IIoT division. Uh, but you guys should get some sponsorship money for this. I mean, like, we, we that, was, that was a good part right there. Yeah, it, it, it was a good part. We'll have to talk to Jeff, right? Yeah. I, I was I was thinking to myself, uh, we we will have to do uh, do some more stuff with uh, with ISA. I find that my ISA stuff and my manufacturing hub stuff are are, are very split. Well, we'll see if we can't uh, do some more collaboration um, over the course of uh, over the course of next year. But but talking about ISA, so so you have worked on and been working and just finished the, the first draft of the evolution of automation systems for ISA. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I, I think that m- might be one of kind of the more technical article things that we uh, we absolutely sure. can highlight because th- there's absolutely a ton of very valuable knowledge that comes out of ISA, very, very similar to what you're doing. Yeah, and this is part of the, the digital transformation. Uh, we really, they settle on digital transformation as they used to be digital engineer, um, okay. but digital transformation course back, I think there's, I think we're up to eight or nine courses that are being developed uh, in this vein. So some are um, communication methods, um, IOT, um, you know, the beginning of well, beginning of IOT background, mm-hmm. um, you know, in-depth communication, data management, data storage. Um, <clears throat> anybody that's sort of I'd say beginner to intermediate uh, in that area uh, could take a very good advantage of it. So the one they they gave to me um, was the evolution of automation systems, uh, and I you know didn't know what to expect in this first course I've ever done. done. But like oh yeah, here's you know. Here's a bit of money. Yeah, go for it. Like, oh, this is great. I get paid for it. And then, you know, 100 hours, some of my hours later, I'm like, wow, I, I do not get paid a lot for that. It's really bad when you do the math on that stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, you got to dig, I got to dig into it uh, really nicely. Um, you know, went through a few books to try to brush up my knowledge about, uh, you know, what was happening in the various areas. Came up with an interesting split where we kind of take the, the you know, the, uh, the four levels of the, the ISA 95 pyramid. Uh, and then kind of see how they evolve over the, the four industrial revolutions we've gone through right now. So you start out with something interesting like, you know, the steam engine back in the first industrial revolution, how that moves on to, you know, electrical, uh, electrical and pneumatics in the, the second, um, you know, microelectronics uh, coming in to kind of improve that in the third, uh, and then IoT being layered on top of the fourth. Um, and really, really interesting to see how that, that kind of progresses. We see... You know, again, got to do a lot of learning in this one. So you see examples, even going back as like you know as early as the first industrial lot of uh, revolution. Yeah, sorry, first industrial revolution where you know you had the old blanket weavers and then bringing in the automated machines, almost turned them into the same same kind of facility you see a CNC operation being right now. So you now instead of having the one person running or sorry three people running one machine, there was one people running three machines, and now we still see that same thing kind of carry through all the way through to present day where, you know, now we have one person running, you know, three CNC machines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really interesting to see that progression through, but yeah, there was a lot, uh, again, a lot of work on it, but uh, a lot of learnings and I think it, it turned out pretty well. It, it'll be interesting to see how it fits. There's a couple uh, guys on there that, um, you know, they, they've got a lot of experience on there and they're bringing some interesting courses in. Um, yeah, I think uh, hopefully it'll, it'll stand up to the quality that those guys have put up there. No, I, I think that that's very interesting. <clears throat> I'm laughing at, at how long these courses take, mostly for Vlad, because behind the scenes, I, I get to listen to, to how long all of these Solus PLC courses, uh, Solus PLC courses take. So, so thank you, bo- thank both of you uh, for spending 
uh, all of this time. And it, at some point, it's basically got to be a labor of love because no one's getting rich out of, off of building courses uh, for, for putting these together. Uh, Ryan, I certainly look forward to taking a look at the course. And when we talk about the, uh, the, the the evolution of automation, I want to shout out the first episode we had this year with Benson Hoagland uh, of Opto22. We did we focused more specifically kind of on the evolution of control systems. And if you guys take a listen, Benson gave a, a really good overview of, of control systems and a really interesting history of, of Opto22. If you guys have not, uh, if you guys have not heard that, absolutely suggest uh, you go take a listen. So. And I know we're running close to time. I kind of want to touch on this uh, this topic that uh, that we, we've joked about a bit. But uh, let let's say let, let's say Ryan, someone really doesn't like themselves, and they're technical, and they decide to go into sales. How, are are they going to make more money? How much are they going to make? Uh, we, would you mind sharing? We don't of course we don't have to get like super specific or, or with you know specific companies. But would you mind sharing maybe a couple of different compensation models that you've seen? I will share a couple of just bizarre compensation models uh, that, that I've run across uh, over the years to to give everyone a tidbit of what that could look like. Sure. Yeah. So um, you know if we're going to look at them, we'll we'll start with the extremes. So. On the one extreme is a straight salary, which is, you know, your day-to-day pay in and out, which in a sales job, extremely rare. You're not going to find that that often. The other extreme is going to be 100% commission. So you get a percentage of everything that's sold out there. Uh, again, that's a fairly rare one, especially when you get into technical sales. In many other sales, you know, applications, sure, but in a larger technical application or even small technical sales companies, they don't do that. It tends to develop psychopaths. Um, so we try to stay away from that. Those guys that are paid strictly on commission, you know, the, the big thing is we do a, there's usually a mix between a, a, a variable and a standard pay, right? So you get, let's say a 70-30 or 60-40 split where, you know, day in, day out, you're going to get 70, 70% of that paycheck. Uh, the rest is all going to be variable on there. You do that fixed proportion. So that the salesperson actually cares about the world around them. And they're not like, I only care about the, the money I'm bringing in and they have their blinders on and they don't care about anything else. So that's usually what ends up happening over there. In a sales application, you're usually going to see, again, the 70-30, 80-20, 60-40 type splits. Don't usually see as low as 50-50 in a technical, um, but I'm sure it can happen on there. In those splits, again, you're going to get a, a base salary. And then on top of there would be a variable. There's two different ways you can run a variable. Um, so you'll get, uh, say you've got $100,000 salary at a 70-30, $70,000 guaranteed. 30% is going to vary depending on what you bring in. One can be uh, dollar for dollar. So if you sell something that's worth 10 grand, you, have, you get 10% commission. You know, you get $1,000 off that, right? Um, your kind of $100,000 salary is based on what we call uh, on-target earnings or OTE. Um, so we can see that dollar to dollar. The other one we see is kind of a target. So the dollar to dollar is, and this is like where you said before, Dave, anytime they change the commission structure, salespeople get screwed on this. Uh, this also comes into effect when all of a sudden you get a sales guy that's doing really, really well and developed this huge territory. Mm-hmm. And now you as a sales manager say, hey, Bob, this is great. You're doing an excellent job, but I want to get Sue to come in and I want Sue to take over half of your territory because we know it can expand even further. Well, if we do that, Bob's all of a sudden going to learn, lose all this money that he's generated on there. Mm-hmm. And Bob is probably going to go find another job, mm-hmm. which is going to happen. So another way to do it is targeted sale, targeted earnings. 
So you say, okay, your budget this year, Bob, is a you know, uh, say a million dollars. If you get 10% above that, we give you 33%. So your 30 variable plus 10% above that, right? So it's a little bit more complicated, but in that case, you can adjust that budgeting and you can still give Bob the money that he is kind of owed on there without having to run into those issues. So again, a couple different ways you can do that. Uh, for the most part, you're going to see the variable be um, you know, sales, uh, sales numbers, but you'll get people splitting up between what they want to see on it. So some will say, um, uh, like say for instance, uh, an SAS uh, company, uh, sales or, or sorry, um, software as a service uh, type company. They'll say we've got, you get this percentage for ARR, so annual or sorry, new ARR, new annual recurring revenue, new logos. Uh, this percentage for the companies that you keep, so existing ARR, mm -hmm. and then this for ancillary items, product services, et cetera, like that. Um, and then that will be done depending on what the company is trying to focus on. If they want to go new logos, <clears throat> they're going to say, okay, Bob, your thing is you get 50% of your variable as new logos. The rest of it is just kind of mixed between the other stuff. And Bob's going to go, oh my gosh, I have to focus on new logos. I have to go out and try to do that stuff. So that's that's kind of how they play around with it. You can split as much as you want, but the more you split, the less impact each category has on it. So if you want to say, I'm going to create 20 different categories my salesperson is going to go after, the salesperson is going to look at the first five and ignore the other 15 on there. But yeah, that, that's usually how it's done. Again, variable on it. Um, you don't see any of their really fixed salaries um, in terms of whether you make more or less as a salesperson. I... Tough to say. I mean, there is uh, sort of the you know the the amount of work you put into a territory is the amount of money you get out of it. Sort of thing. Um, you know, there are going to be breaks where it's not going to go your way, but yeah, for the most part, you kind of control your own destiny in many of these uh, these aspects. Uh, sales can be extremely rewarding, or in other aspects, I mean, it can be uh, extremely frustrating as well. It all depends. Even on the same day, it can both be very oh, yeah. rewarding and very frustrating. No, I think I think Ryan, I think you hit a bunch of really good ones. Um, I, I will throw a couple uh, a couple of things out there that, that I've seen in addition to those. I think you probably hit the, the solid, you know, middle eighty or ninety percent. Um, I will say that I have seen on a not infrequent basis, if you are new to an organization or you are new to sales there being some amount of time in which you do get a fixed salary. You know, it might be a year, it might be two years. It's saying, hey, you've got to come and develop this new territory or, hey, you've got to learn what the sales process is. We don't expect you to sell enough to be able to make 60 or 100 grand or wh whatever the number is, but we're going to go pay you this amount of money so you can do things like afford to live and go spend time building the territory and spend time building, uh, building the book of business. I've seen kind of, uh, depending upon what the organization is, uh, kind of change commission percentages based upon what they want people to sell more of, which does the exact thing that Ryan says, right? It, let's say I get 10% on PLCs and 1% and on Ethernet cable. I'm going to go sell more PLCs than I do sell Ethernet cable. But if I get 10% on Ethernet and 1% on PLCs, it's probably going to be the inverse, right? So, so people create sales structures in order to in order to help their salespeople focus on the things that, that they want to see. Um, I, I've seen a couple of organizations work on a draw, right? So similar to the on-direct earnings that, that Ryan said, you know, you get paid X number of dollars of salary um, over the course of the month. And if you make more, if you sell more, we're going to pay you a, a commission percentage uh, on top of that. That I, I feel like that's becoming probably less common, 
um, than it was before, maybe less common in this side of, of more technical sales than, than some other sales. And I did work with an organization that was just th this strange, we've got four or five outside salespeople. And if we as an organization sell more, everyone makes more money. So, so instead, like everyone had defined territories and I assume they ha had, you know, targeted uh, numbers and targeted, you know, increases, you know, year over year, but everyone got paid functionally about the same, which was just the, the strangest thing that, uh, th that I had ever seen. It was good if you didn't sell as much or were new because when other territories produced, you made more money. It was less good because they generally lost all of their good younger salespeople to territory to to similar or slightly different territories and larger companies who are, who are willing to pay them more money. Yeah. The, so the first one you called out was yeah the um, um, basically we we used to call it a bridge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you get yep. you know ninety days, uh, you know, 60, 90, 120 days to to kind of get into the role. Yep. Um, yeah. That last one. Can't say I've ever seen that one happening because yeah, it's sort of it's kind of the communist method of uh, of sales. I think I, I I saw it once that they had two or three or four kind of long term salespeople. The long term mm -hmm. salespeople were, were very happy, but they also were not doing any prospecting. Right, like they begrudgingly worked a day or two a week, and and like. <laughs> They they were the outside salespeople who had like offices and mm -hmm. they were always in their office. So I, I guess I will say that I, I know many outside sales teams who the outside salespeople don't have an office because you don't want them in the office. You want them going out to uh, to talk to people. Uh, but but again, the, the people who worked there were, were really good. It was a fairly stable business. It just never grew and probably will never grow for a number of reasons, inclusive of, hey, I could go sell $20 million of whatever, but I'm not going to make marginally any more dollars than if I were to sell, you know, $4 million or whatever my territory is supposed to uh, on, on track earn over the course of the year. So it, it was it was very interesting, right? I promised a bizarre or a couple of bizarre styles that, that, that I've seen before. That was that was very interesting. I, I, in fact, the first time the outside salespeople told me that, I thought I misheard them. I'm like, excuse me, how do you guys get paid? And then I'm like, I don't think I can be an outside salesperson as part of this organization because if I if I sell things, I want to to make more money to to go sell these things. So so for, for me, that was it was very interesting, right? It was very equitable. Again, they had a bunch of people who had been there a long time. It was good because it helped the collaboration between like technically very good outside salespeople with less technically good outside salespeople. And so if I'm in territory A and Ryan's in territory B, it doesn't matter if I sell in territory A and focus only on that, or if I help Ryan go make a couple of big deals in territory B, because we don't have to worry about who gets the credit for that sale because we're all going to, to make more money. Um, again, I don't think it's going to work in the long run. It would not work for very many organizations, but but it was a very interesting sales structure. I've, I've seen that once before. I would almost guarantee that I will never see it uh, again in, in any other organization that is a sales organization. Yeah, there'd have to be some very specific reasons for going with that, and it would yeah. have to be sort of a capped market where, yeah, yeah, you're you're not going to get much past where you are right now. Yeah, or, or or perhaps everyone is a partner within the business, and 
we're all going to go out and sell more and we're all going to generally equitably share splits. Although there are issues in that because someone is going to want to make more because they sell more, which, which is human nature. Uh, yeah. but, but as, as Ryan said, luckily there are not, are not nearly as many psychopaths uh, in this business because there, there are longer timeframes. It would be really bad to be on straight commission uh, the last couple of years, especially if you're in hardware sales. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's and that's where you get the yeah. You know, that's where my psychopath comic comes from because I mean, if you imagine somebody trying to sell PLCs over the past two years and they're you know they're completely dependent on that PLC shipping, mm-hmm. they would probably start going a little crazy. Yeah, I know people who have millions of dollars mm-hmm. of backlog because they they can't ship things, and so yeah. th- that is why there's the benefit of people have enough money in order to do things like uh, like eat and and house themselves and and all of those other things. So. Uh, absolutely. Helpful, yeah. Ab- absolutely. Vlad, what are your thoughts on sales things? Have Ryan and I convinced you to go leave the comforts of your basement, go leave the technology behind and just go become a salesperson? Well, look, I guess the, the, the long answer to that is I remember. So back in like late 2016, right? I had a, an interview which uh, proposed me a, a structure where I would be 20% of my salary would be like commission-based, but it also like fluctuated, you know, with company metrics. So it wasn't like a pure sales role. It was like an application engineer's role, uh, but mm-hmm. there was some commission-based salary. And at that time, I guess it wasn't entirely clear to me, you know, that 20%, how far it could swing up or down. And so I was very hesitant to... uh to go for that role. Um, I, I guess based on this conversation, I think I have a better understanding of how that would go. That being said, I'm still, I guess, unclear if in my first year I could be, uh, as you said, a, a psychopath and get like a million <laughs> in commissions and, 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 you know, kind of just sling PLCs left and right. But um, that, that would be maybe like my question. But I, I think like to be respectful of time, we should probably... So, so we, we will, we will go move uh, towards asking Ryan kind of the follow-up questions and go finish this. I do want to make one last comment uh, about uh, sales and, and, and payment structures. There will be some places that tell you that everything is uncapped and there's limitless amounts of money that, that you can possibly make. That, that's always a lie. Uh, there are always confines of things like that. Vlad, in the 20% uh, comp that you had that would be sales, there's no chance you'd be able to make a million dollars. If you were even on track after the first quarter, um, they would go change the, the sales commission structure so that you couldn't possibly, uh, so that you couldn't possibly go make a million dollars. There are certainly very well compensated salespeople, right? I would say some of the highest paid folks that um, there are some of the highest paid folks in industry are probably uh, w- within the sales side if they're, if they're very good. Um, but everything has a cap if you're going and the first time you're looking at, at the sales side uh to, to ryan's earlier point ask what the on-track earnings look like understand if there has a, if there is a territory what the territory did last year uh what we're expecting the territory to do th- this year kind of all of those are, are very positive questions but to vlad's point that is a conversation uh a long conversation uh for, for another time so if you guys want to hear more about sales stuff because you are self-loathing like uh, like all salespeople um, in this industry. Uh, please go ahead, type it in the comments. Uh, s- send Vlad, Vlad messages that you 
also would like to know more about sales and, and we will continue the, uh, the conversation. I will say Vlad has only gotten two or three hate messages from his sales <laughs> friends wondering why they were not the person on. And, and, and if that doesn't sum up, if that doesn't sum up the sales, uh, sales in this industry, I don't know what does. Uh, but, but Ryan, th- this has been amazing so far. Uh, we want to ask you some, some kind of final questions. So we always like to, to ask people to predict w- what the future looks like um, because, because it's fun and we'll have you on in three years from now and we'll all laugh at about how wrong you were uh, when you asked, when we asked you to predict the future. But what do you think the, the future of, of sales or, or technical sales or maybe just kind of automation um, in general look like? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the future of sales is is going to be, I mean, I'm trying to think of something that will get me not in trouble in three years. Um, yeah, it, it was funny because you look three years before, I mean, we go back to, you know, 2019 yep. and we all, you know, there's a ton of travel going on. There was you know, the reliance on outside sales. There was the thought that, you know, you had to be out to close big contracts, everything like that. Pandemic hits, everybody goes onto Teams, onto Zoom, onto whatever. And now you're doing a lot of, you know, a lot of virtual work. I mean, I look at a lot of the travel I used to do and like, why the hell did I travel you know, eight hours to go on site for, you know, a short read that would now take place on Zoom? Like, yep. you know, that's, that's the sort of thing we're looking at right now. So, I mean, I think we're going to see, I think we'll see some bounce back in terms of in-person uh, items. I think we'll, when we've seen an embrace of the virtual uh, sales process, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I think it will be augmented by uh, in-person visits, but I think you're going to see a lot of the a lot of the smaller stuff, a lot of the introductory stuff, uh, really taken care of uh, by the online. Now, when we look at sales, I mean, we can we have sales organizations that deal with you know, global, national aspects. I think we're going to see the local guys uh, still be very important. You know, the local guys that kind of go place to place to place. I mean, I look at uh, you know some of the mining towns in northern Ontario where yeah, you know, you've got you know, the sales guy out there is buddies with 20 different people at, you know, factory A or mining place A, B, and C. He goes out there on a monthly basis with breakfast or lunch or whatever. Uh, I think those guys will still be important because there is that relationship base there. And I don't think a, a virtual interface like this really takes over that. So having the, the, the local guys will still be important. I think many of the higher level or more wide, um, wide ranging sales uh, people that give you a lot more virtual in, in how they approach things. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I think here you're going to kind of see this equilibrium happen over the next few years where we do see some more in person, but this virtual really kind of sticks around. I think we're seeing the future right now first. I, I would, I would agree with that. I, I spoke with someone uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago and they, they work with a client, right? The client is 40 miles away, but 40 miles in major city traffic is like three hours one way. And so they were going to go see the person in person for the first time in a year. They were going to go do lunch or something like that because half an hour of meetings is not worth someone spending their entire day driving back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I would absolutely uh, agree that I think the the, the relationship based opportunities, especially with folks at factories, are, are going to uh, w- it will always be important, right? To to some extent, you have to have a relationship with people in order to go sell them the product, in order to help them go kind of transition along what they're doing. We are I don't think we're ever going to uh, to be able to to get away from that. Uh, so, so I think that those those are very good predictions. It would you would be hard pressed to be proven exceptionally wrong with, with those, Ryan. Uh, you say that so, now, but yeah, yeah. The past, like I said, 
three years ago, it was a completely different ballgame. So I was I was looking at a notebook from three years ago and thoughts of what I was going to do that year and everything else, and horrifically wrong. Right, <laughs> basically, I, basically everything that that I had planned for the the following six months uh, was proven to be absolutely and terribly wrong. So I, I I would agree with that. It is difficult to predict the future, which is why we have so much fun with this. So, so thank you for that. Uh, the, the next question we would love to ask is uh, some career advice. Right. So let's say let's say Vlad is looking to get into sales, or someone else is is a technical person is looking to get into sales. The last ninety minutes have somehow not dissuaded them from doing so. Well, I should say if the next if the last ninety minutes have not dissuaded you from getting into sales, you might be a salesperson. So, mm-hmm. um, what what are what are your suggestions? Sh- should they run to the hills and stay on the technical side? Sh- sh- should they embrace the insanity that is technical sales? Uh, what would be your suggestions uh, for someone who is interested in finding an opportunity in sales? And how would they ma- maximize their commission? Yeah. A, embrace the insanity. I mean, go out there, you know, try to get out there. Uh, the biggest ones are really try to be involved in the community. I think mm-hmm. that's that's really underrated. I think you find the good salespeople are the ones that get out there. They're the ones that are being trying to be involved. Um, they're the ones that are trying to make the community better. And I think that has a huge impact on how the community kind of sees you as a person trying to get out and sell something. I mean, if you're, you know, if you don't interface with anybody outside of, um, you know, talking to them about a product or a service, I mean, you're then a salesperson. If you're involved in ISA, if you're involved in, you know, IEEE or anything like that, I mean, when you get out there now, it's like, okay, so-and-so is not a, a salesperson. They're somebody that I can bring in and they know what they're talking about. They're involved. I, I know that they're a nice person. I know where else they hang out so I can confront them, you know, if they screw me over sort of thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of good parts of being involved. So get out, go get involved in the association, um, you know, go hang out with people out there and just try to get back to the community. I think that's, that's probably one of the best things that I can get. I, I think that, that, that is great advice. I will kind of piggyback and say, if you're a technical person looking to get into sales, um, and you don't want to go through the mindless kind of sending resumes into large companies. There are lots of smaller companies, uh, distributors, manufacturers, reps, integrators, places like that who are always looking um, and, and may or may not have a good onboarding and sales training process. So that is always very good. Uh, we've talked talk to a number of people, especially on the Siemens side over the last year or so. I know that they have a great kind of like post-college opportunity where you get to go and do four or five different uh, work within four or five different business units. I know that there are a number of other organizations like that. And so there are a lot of those who um, th- there are a lot of those in there who could be uh, who could be good if you're looking to, to make that move. Uh, but no, I think that this has been great, Ryan. Uh, next question. So so we, we like to ask for book recommendations. And so historically, I joke that, that this is the hashtag not sponsored audible recommendation where I ask you for a book recommendation and then Vlad immediately go de- goes and spends his audible credit to download it. Uh, Ryan has given us a bit of a preview of this. Vlad has already purchased the book. So, so, so Ryan, uh, can you give us a book recommendation, please? Yeah. I mean, I mentioned free economics before. I think that was a good one. I think that Vlad's got it to get that one. Um, if I, and you know, I mentioned I had to read, bunch of books to, to put the course together. One author that I'd kind of put forward would be a guy by the name of Vaclav Schmiel, V-A-C-L-I-V-S-M-I-L for the last name. And he does these great books about a, a topic where 
you know, he looks at uh, you know, energy, which was like uh, took it all the way from bio, you know, basically bioluminescence, uh, you know, essentially plants eating or plants taking nutrients from the soil all the way to you know, nuclear fission, nuclear mm-hmm. fusion, sort of thing. Um, did this with the early 20th century book. Um, actually, I better right here. Where is it? Yeah, it's somewhere there. Oh, Creating the 20th Century. So by Vaclav Smil, where he looks at a period of 1867 to 1917. And it's crazy because you don't realize that everything we do today is all based off those 50 years. Um, anything that we're using right now is based off the inventions out of there. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely recommend, recommend that book for sure. Awesome. No, I, I appreciate that. I, I think that we all have some good reading or or listening uh, to do. I will say Freakonomics, a very good audiobook. Uh, if you guys are interested uh, to, uh, to to listen to that, I've done that. So I was telling Ryan, I think two or three times in addition to uh, to reading the actual book. Oh, no, that is awesome. And the last question for you, Ryan, is, is um, you know, who should reach out to you? What sort of conversations do you want to have? Generally, how can the community of, of listeners that, that we have built kind of help you in, in whatever you're looking to do? Uh, good question. Well, I'll uh, I'll be able to tell you more on January 3rd. I'll put it up. Um, but in the meantime, I mean, anybody that wants to get involved in ISA, uh, definitely reach out. Uh, if you are just looking for a conversation, maybe getting pointed in the right direction in a certain area, um, you know, it's, uh, again, spent the past month being a free agent, had a couple other free agents kind of reach out and say, hey, let's chat and see what we can do. And I mean, those conversations were always good as well. So, yeah, no, um, just always like to connect with people. Uh, learn a bit more about what you do and you know, how uh, we can kind of work together. No, awesome. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been an amazing show. I will, again, say if you guys want us to talk more about sales stuff and you want Vlad to uh, to go do the interrogation uh, routine on some more sales folks, uh, pl- please let us know. It's, it's a bit outside of, of the technical style conversations uh, that we typically have. But but every once in a while, we like to, to try some, some new things, to try some slightly different conversations. So please let us know if you like it or if you don't like it. No, no offense to, to Ryan, of course. If you think <laughs> that we have picked incorrect topics, uh, always reach out. Please uh, please feel free to, uh, to let us know. Um, while you guys are listening, if you're on podcast form, uh, please hit the subscribe button. Uh, please rate us five star on Apple Podcasts. Please do all of those amazing things and hit follow. And I think you can also rate us five stars on what Audible and Spotify. All of that helps a lot uh, for reasons that we're not going to talk about. If you guys are watching on LinkedIn, please hit the like and subscribe. Please follow myself and Vlad and Ryan. Uh, We are always uh, about on the internet, Uh, but no, this has been amazing. Uh, So everyone, uh, we will see you guys next uh, Wednesday, December 21st, Vlad and I for the last show of the season, we will do something special. Uh, I'm saying this now, Vlad and I have not had a conversation about the special thing that we will do to, uh, to end the year, but Vlad and I will do something special, uh, to, uh, to end the year, have some, have some fun conversations. And then you guys can continue to catch us, uh, Thursdays in your earbuds. Um, until then we'll talk to everyone soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone.